Welcome to the Modern Mind Huff Podcast. I am your host, Richard Huffman. This is the only podcast dedicated to, yet unaffiliated with, the Bader Meinhof gang. We talk about all things Bader Meinhof, left-wing German terrorism of the 1970s, and other related ephemera. Um, today on the show we have Martin Klimka, who's a German scholar, and his new book, The Other Alliance, details the many ways that the German and American student movements of the 60s influenced each other. Um, it's an amazing, eye-opening read. It, de- it uh, delves into history that has never really been explored, to my knowledge, in other books. Prior to this book, there were few works that really even hinted at the you know, any cross-Atlantic cooperation between the student movements. But he's outlined some very real and very tangible ways that they fed off of each other and built off of each other's successes. Um, And he also later details how the German student movement and groups like the Red Army Faction were directly inspired by the Black Panthers. Um, I found my conversation with Mr. Klimka to be a real eye-opener. There was something different about speaking with him than, than, uh, than, than other interviews I've had with other people. And it took me a while to put my finger on it. And then I realized, um, you know, he's born a full decade after the pivotal years of 67, 68. And his work is that of a true, you know, classic, classical historian. And I realized, speaking with him, that unlike almost everybody I've ever talked to about this era and this group, he... He's not coming to it from some first-hand account or having some direct link to these uh, people and this time. He's coming at it like a a true historian would. He's he's treating it like you would treat somebody who talks about the um, time of Jesus or the Middle Ages or the Great Depression. It's a pure historian. Um, in America, we have this expression, you know, somebody doesn't have a dog in this fight, uh, meaning they have no particular agenda or bias in an argument. That's kind of where he's coming from. It was really refreshing and interesting to speak to somebody who just approached it from pure history. Um, and it was it was very eye-opening, very enlightening. I myself, you know, I was I was born in 68, so I... You know, I came of age well after a lot of the events here, and I knew nothing of them, but I have obvious clear biases based on the fact that German terrorists tried to kill my mom and dad. Um, but Mr. Klimka doesn't have any of that. Um, he, it's, uh, it was a very interesting conversation. He's um, an incredibly intelligent um, historian, and I think he represents, you know, the coming wave of historians that are going to view this from pure history and can sort of separate the wheat from the chaff and separate the internal biases that a lot of the um, preliminary historians um, suffered from. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed the interview as much as I did conducting it. Okay, we're speaking with uh, Martin Klimka, whose uh, book, The Other Alliance, details the transnational interactions between the new left of Germany in the 60s and the new left of the United States. And um, welcome, Martin. Thank you so much for speaking with me. Thanks for having me on, Richard. And um, I confess a lot of this book was completely new to me. I've read a lot about this particular subject, and I wasn't really aware of these deep connections. Why do you think this subject hasn't really been adequately explored prior to your book? I think there are basically two reasons for that. Uh, one of the reasons is, of course, that the nature of the context between activists from different parts of the world 
um, was very often um, temporary. It, it didn't leave a consistent paper trail, and people just went from uh, places uh, to places, uh, met there, and there was no consistent set of records detailing their encounters. And the second reason is that we only now, after uh, about 40 years of the or after these events, have um, a lot of sources, government sources, that have been declassified and that show us the full impact and nature um, of these connections. Uh, and maybe an additional reason is the fact that, um, as an historian going through these um, archives, you have to travel to various archives uh, across not only the United States, but also um, other parts in Europe. Uh, and language is, of course, also an issue here. You have to be able to read all of these sources. So I guess you know, all of these factors come together um, and tell us why it has taken so long um, to compile such a study. Sure. And what prompted your interest in this subject? You seem, um, I don't know how old you are, but by judging by your book uh, cover, you seem like you probably did not grow up in this era. I certainly did not. I was born in 77, and uh, I grew up um, listening to the, the debates about um, the 60s, the baby boomers, uh, and about 68. And I guess I was exposed to its memorial culture to the extent that uh, I was always interested in what actually uh, took place during that particular debate decade and why people got so involved uh, in, in, in politics. And one of the things that really surprised me all the time was the emotional intensity with which these debates were being waged from both sides um, of the political aisle. And I guess one of the reasons in exploring this topic further was um, to come closer to that particular core uh, and passion that drove people in politics at that particular point in time, and also to analyze what the legacies of those times were um, for today, for the way uh, that we've come and maybe the way forward. Sure. So you trace some of the earliest connections between the German and American student movements to Michael Vester, a German student who came to America in the early 60s, and he's sort of like patient zero for both the American and S American SDS and the German S SDS um, organizations. Tell me who he was and how he helped tie these two organizations together. Vester is in a lot of ways a very, very interesting person because he's key for understanding the network that is established at the beginning of the 60s between the American SDS and the German SDS. And the German SDS stands for uh, the German Social Student League, which is basically the youth and student organization of the German Social Democratic Party up until the beginning of the 60s um, when it emancipates itself, much like the American SDS, from its um, parent organization. And Fester has become... Um, active at that point in the German SDS. He's become the vice president of German SDS uh, in charge of international affairs and comes to the United States um, in 1961-62 uh, on a Fulbright scholarship to Bolden College uh, in Maine and gets in touch with people such as Tom Hayden and L. Haber from the American SDS and talks to them about their politics and discovers a lot of similarities there. And uh, he then becomes active in the American SDS, uh, organizes on the uh, East Coast. And what's interesting about this interchange is that Fester is really the, one of the first ones to write an extensive critique of the draft of the Port Huron Statement uh, by Tom Hayden. And then he comes to Port Huron and basically um, writes whole section of the Port Huron Statement that has to do with Berlin 
and the Cold War, and that is his, his strongest influence right there um, at the creation of the uh, so-called agenda for a generation in the American SPS. And on the other hand, and that's even more important uh, in terms of this transatlantic network, is that when he goes back, he writes extensively about the American New Left, the concept of direct action, the American civil rights movement, and the works of Theodore Mills. So it's really uh, one of the earliest facilitators of this transnational alliance, the other alliance, as I call it in my book. Explain, explain that concept of the other alliance. What is the first alliance? Well, the first alliance is the very deep transatlantic partnership between the Federal Republic of Germany, West Germany, and the United States um, after the Second Cold War. Uh, and what I trace in my book is how this alliance uh, that is based on uh, firm commitment to the Western um, alliances, to NATO, uh, and to anti-communism is being undermined by a young generation on both sides of the Atlantic who start to question uh, a lot of the assumptions um, of that particular alliance who is uh, disillusioned by the fact that America is waging an un- a uh, questionable war in Vietnam and who feels that America's promises of democracy um, have been hypocritical in the face of its treatments, for example, uh, with African-American minority. Basically, what we can see on both sides of the Atlantic is that a generation that is um, very enthusiastic, very optimistic, also cheering John F. Kennedy at the beginning of the 60s, becomes very disillusionized in the course of the decade uh, and turns against uh, the United States government for its policies because it believes that the um, actions do not match um, the words um, and the role, historical role, um, of the United States in terms of being a guarantor of democracy and freedom across the world. And it's this um, transatlantic alliance, which I call the other alliance, which is a counter-alliance um, of student activists in this case on both sides of the Atlantic, which tries to change some of the aspects of the official alliance that has been established between the governments of West Germany and the United States during the Cold War. Sure, and you made it you made it clear in your book that this wasn't like an anti-Americanism in general. The students, it's it's an opposition to the American government, but you couldn't call it anti-Americanism almost because many of the tactics were straight from America. It was not an opposition to the American people so much as the American government. You're absolutely right. You both sides do not understand themselves as anti-American um, at all. Um, uh, one would, could even argue that in the case of the West German um, student movement, we can talk about it uh, with America against America phenomenon because uh, so much of the counterculture, so much of the protest techniques, the ideology has been uh, imported from the American context. Uh, and it's basically the feeling that America does not live up to its promises that drives a lot of people, not only in the United States during the 60s, but also uh, in West Germany, out on the streets, and that America returns to its original ideas. Um, and in that sense, um, it's not anti-American at all. There is, of course, uh, especially in the West German side, uh, a subset of anti-American stereotypes and preconceived notions that swings uh, into the German um, left. But uh, by and large, we're looking at a generation uh, which is um, deeply positive um, towards America in general and is deeply disappointed by America's actions in the 60s. 
Um, it seems like um, the Free University of Berlin is central both geographically and philosophically to so much of the narrative of your book. Tell me about how the Free University kind of came to be, and why did it become such a focal point for the New Left movement? The Free University is crucial because it's set in one of the hotspots um, of the Cold War, and that is Berlin. It was established uh, at the end of 1948 um, as a counterpart to the Humboldt University in East Berlin, which was heavily supervised by the East German Communist Party uh, and where students were basically urged to follow party lines. Uh, the Free University, on the other hand, is situated in West Berlin and is um, strongly supported. The establishment is strongly supported by the American General Lucius de Clay, uh, for example. And in contrast to its Eastern opponent, the university um, allows for democratic influence of students in university life. So it's, it's founded, if you like, on an anti-totalitarian and even anti-communist uh, understanding, and it sees itself as an institution that strongly favors and supports democracy and equality, even the um, academic realm. Now, what happens during the 1960s is, however, that this self-perception of the free university as uh, uh, an island in uh, surrounded by uh, hostile communist territory, um, is being tested by students. The first cracks um, appear in this progressive image of the free university uh, when in 1965 um, a speaker invited by the student body um, of the free university who has been critical of the concept of the free university is not allowed on campus. It grows even further that rift between students um, and the university administration, an assistant professor's contract is not renewed because he supposedly criticizes the university president and the war in Vietnam in a newspaper. And this goes on during the 1960s to the mid-60s. There's a growing disillusionment on the part of the student body of the Freedom University uh, about the true relations of power and the actual degree of freedom uh, academic or political at the so-called free university uh, and Vietnam plays a crucial role in that and remember one of the things that is also important here that we have a population in Berlin which is very very grateful uh, to the United States for its support during the Berlin blockade to the airlift um, and to all of the things um, that America has done for the city uh, and we have a student population on the other hand or a student movement I should say uh, that is very critical of the United States for its actions in Vietnam, uh, for uh, its treatment of its minorities. And this rift between Berliners on the one hand and students on the other hand also um, makes the situation especially tense. Well, you know, one thing that, pardon me, I often don't see mentioned is that the Free University is literally next door to the American Army base. I actually... When I was a child, I lived on that American Army base. And if you visit it, you realize that they're, they're, they're geographically next door to each other. And I often wonder what the effect, and I'm wondering what you think, the effect of all of these students, the ones that are the least like the Berliners and their attitudes towards Americans in general, what effect that had mingling with so many Americans, and I'm thinking particularly Vietnam veterans. I mean, they could not help but be in constant contact with each other. What do you what do you think the effect that was on the student movement, either positive or negative? 
I think it has an extremely positive effect. And the interesting thing is that this proximity and this, these relationships between student activists and uh, American judges were closely monitored by U.S. officials in West Berlin at the time. And you remember uh, the, uh, the United States, as part of the Allied powers, was in charge for the security of Berlin. Yeah. And by and large, it followed the policy of non-intervention in the face of student interest. That means that uh, although U.S. officials were times extremely worried uh, about student unrest and the effect it could have on the city, it more or less um, led local authorities uh, handle the situation. But there are a couple of times in the course of 1968 that U.S. officials thought that local authorities might not able be able to handle that situation anymore and that they had to intervene. And one of these instances um, takes place in uh, February 1968 when uh, the German student leader Rudi Dutschke wants to lead a demonstration uh, through the territory where the army barracks, the American barracks, uh, are situated uh, and potentially um, GIs wanting to join that uh, particular demonstration um, were banned from um, attending and from leaving the barracks. So there are a couple of situations in 1968 where U.S. officials are very, very um, careful to separate these two groups um, and are very, very worried about the fact that um, they, at some point, if security uh, breaks down in the city and local law enforcement cannot handle the situation anymore, uh, they would have to call in the army to restore order, for example, uh, in the fall of 68 when the German SDS is contemplating uh, a blockade of the Autobahn, the blockade of the transit to West Berlin. Uh, this is a very, very difficult, uh, also diplomatic situation then, of course, because the United States is just one of the allied powers here. And they were closely watching uh, these relationships between um, American GIs and, and German students. Yeah. I, I don't know if you're aware of this, but my father was actually the head of the U.S. Army's bomb disposal unit. He arrived in Berlin. Right. Um, literally, we arrived there a, about a week after Andres Bader was freed from custody in Dahlem. Oh, I see. And we uh -huh. left uh, maybe a couple months after they were all captured in 72. So he was there at a very crucial time, and, and um, he diffused, he figures about seven bombs that were left by what I presume to be the June 2nd movement, um, mm -hmm. including one that was left at uh, Harnick House, which, is, which was the American Officers Club at the time. My mom was having lunch in there, and somebody left a bomb on the windowsill which would have killed many people, um, including my mother. My dad diffused it. He diffused another one that was at Templehof Airport that he believes was mm -hmm. directly, you know, directly um, uh, directly meant for him and his crew because as they were working on this bomb at the foot of this airplane, somebody looked up and saw in the wheel well of the airplane another bomb that was set to go off even earlier. So there, what, 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 I, what was interesting about that was that there was efforts, including that bomb at Harnack House, which I think might have set off an immense amount of tension because that was literally yeah. right at the heart of the free university. Um, it's it, Obviously, this background is what kind of sparked my interest in this time frame. So, mm, um, okay, so let's talk about Herbert uh, Marcuse, who was certainly one of the most influential thinkers among the new left, uh, the people that they looked um, up towards. Um, tell me about his one-dimensional man and why was it so important to um, – 
to German um, students? What, what was it that, what did they get from it that was so critical for their thinking? Well, one of the things that they got from it was the argument that um, that modern industrial society is one-dimensional in the sense that uh, the working class, for example, has been co-opted by consumerism into the capitalist society at large and has been in large uh, lost its revolutionary uh, potential. So the idea that fundamental social change could only come from the marginalized of societies or minorities or people on the fringes on the outside is something uh, that German students found very attractive about Marcuse's work. And this, this outsider theory and, and the term of um, the great refusal that Marcuse coined um, is something that finds its way into the thinking of the so-called anti-authoritarian faction of the German SCS around Rudi Dutschke. Uh, and Dutschke believes that intellectuals um, could be instrumental in helping um, these forces um, uh, to break out of their repression, uh, the working class and the masses. And he was of the opinion that he could um, emancipate them through political education. And that would be the task of the intellectual or the student who is equally outside of society uh, to a certain extent, basically to facilitate um, the social change by political education and by emancipating the masses. If you like, that's one of the points that I found very attractive on a domestic level. On an international level, that's even more important. Um, they compared these minorities to the liberation movements of the third world. And one of the things uh, that is crucial here to understand is that the West German student activists uh, of the late 60s did not believe that the crucial global conflict during um, that particular time was the Cold War between East and West, but it was the divide between North and South. In other words, the rich and industrialized countries against the so-called Third World. And in that framework, which they saw as a framework of international um, class struggle, the liberation movements became the minorities that needed to be supported from inside the West and whether they'd be in Vietnam uh, or in South America, uh, they needed to be supported to initiate a change, a transition to a more just and peaceful world as the students saw it at that point. So that, of course, leads to Frantz Fanon's work, The Wretched of the Earth, which is about ending third world colonialism. How did that become so fundamental, and how, how, why was that so important to the West German student movements in their own exploration of the theoretical discourse? Well, one of the things um, that Fanon argues for is that there's a specific kind of violence that exists in colonial relationships, and that's not only direct physical violence, but also structural violence that manifests itself uh, in social or in legal inequalities. And Fanon argues that any uh, transition out of the state um, has to be associated uh, with violence since it's needed to break the grip if you like, um, of both the physical and the structural violence um, that constricts the colonized. Um, and that is something that West German students found extremely attractive because what they took away from Fanon is that in order to break out of a colonial situation and regain its uh, your identity, um, you need to um, overcome that situation by the application of violence. In other words, the liberating notion of violence is something that West Germans found very, very appealing, and they translated that to their own context. 
And that is something that then um, comes together with the legacy of national socialism. In other words, the idea to cut yourself off from any of the parent generation, the idea that uh, you can self-empower yourself um, through violence uh, and then create a new identity and a new future is something that we see uh, in segments of the West German student movement, and in particular, uh, of course, in um, the Red Army factions and uh, its actions that you just talked about. Well, you you talk about, you write a lot of in the book about the Black Panther movement and how um, it resonated deeply with German students, even Gudrun Enslin of the of the Red Army faction. What did what did they learn from the Black Panther movement? What was what was their what were the lessons that they gleaned from the Black Panthers, specifically like the Red Army faction, other groups, but maybe the student movement in general? Yeah, yeah. Well, the um, German student activists who were either um, visiting the United States or encountering Black Power representatives um, at international congresses, uh, they took away the lesson that. The Black Panthers were an example of a protest movement in the heart of imperialism, as they called it, in the belly of the beast. Uh, and German activists admired the determination, the militancy, and the self-empowerment of Black uh, Panthers. They admired the rejection of society and their attempt to create a new uh, identity. And this fascination also went hand-in-hand hand with a great affinity uh, to Black culture in general, which was uh, most often based on romanticized uh, notions and the perception that black culture would be somehow more authentic uh, than their own culture and violence. And the fact that um, really plays an enormous role here is that, again, the use of violence um, to shake up revolutionary consciousness of the masses is something that West German activists see not only in the urban riots um, in New York and uh, Detroit, and the second half of the 60s, but also in the Black Panthers' confrontations with the police uh, and their expressions of militancy. That is something um, that West Germans um, try to emulate um, in their um, activism. Uh, and uh, in, in the eyes of West um, German activists of the SDS at that particular point, the Black Panthers' interpretation of the black population as an internal colony of the United States, which could only liberate itself from oppression through the use of violence, becomes very powerful and becomes adopted and transferred yet again to the German context in which the Federal Republic uh, all of a sudden has been transformed into an external colony of the United States, which then bears, of course, at least part of the responsibility for the crimes committed um, in Vietnam as uh, the West German student movement saw it. So by and large, they take away an enormous amount of um, of identification in terms of the background as being a role model that they need to follow in their own context. Sure. So after the um, June or there about 72 arrests of the leadership of the Red Army faction, Meinhof and Enslin and Raspa and and Bader at all, they the RAF almost transformed into a prisoners' rights organization. It stopped being about revolution, mostly became about getting them out of prison, dealing with their prison conditions. And you trace some of this to examples set by the Black Panthers. How, 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 how do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? Well, uh, the people that um, the Red Army faction members are looking towards are, of course, the example of George Jackson and Angela Davis. And what they take away from their 
examples and their time in prison and their prison writings, uh, in the case of George Jackson, is uh, the strong will to persevere in the face of oppression. That is how they phrase it. Um, the international examples, and especially the examples of the Black Panthers, as well as references again to the National Socialist past, were used then by the RF inmates to mobilize and to boost morale. Uh, and that is something you said uh, absolutely correctly. It's also used on the outside to create a large support network uh, and to perpetuate um, the image of being victimized and persecuted in prison. Uh, and that is something that often goes along with uh, major distortions, of course, of the historical record. And the adoption, and that is crucial, of the case of the Black Panthers or other international uh, examples in an effort to come to terms with one's own national past and, of course, with the um, attempt to create uh, huge sympathy on the outside. Um, do you think that the Red Army faction was like an inevitable outgrowth of the new left, the, the increasingly radical new left, or was it somewhat of an aberration? Is it, it, was it, I guess what I'm asking is, it, was it predestined mm-hmm. to happen? Was it going to happen whether it was that group or another group or was it just sort of happenstance that a group like that came to be I don't think that there was uh, an, an inevitable path from the German student movement uh, to the Red Army faction what we can say however that the Red Army faction grows uh, out of the German student movement out of its intellectual uh, and theoretical inspiration uh, and that the ideas are then turned into reality by the Red Army factions are already floating around within the German student movement at the, in the middle of uh, the 1960s. Um, and uh, one of the things that we need to keep in mind, however, is that we're talking about a very small minority um, of people who were associated and then sometimes not, not even associated with the West German student movement who take up arms and who become members of the Red Army faction and of, of other uh, militant organizations uh, during the 1970s, and the fact that the actions of the Red Army faction are heavily contested uh, within uh, what is left at that particular uh, time at the beginning um, of the 70s of the former uh, German New Left. So I don't think that uh, there is a direct link, which is inevitable, from the German student movement to the Red Army faction, but there's certainly a very deep uh, intellectual and theoretical um, connection there uh, that one can retrace, for example, in the writings um, of Rudy Dutschke uh, and others who, on the other hand, always distance themselves then from the um, actions that were carried out by the Red Army factions. Yeah. So one of the things that I've noticed recently in recent years is this kind of maim among historians that they're drawing strong connections and parallels between East Germany and the student movement, and I guess the narrative that they're putting together is that much of the 60s discord and much of the destabilization or attempts at destabilization of of West German society was a product of a kind of a conspiracy by East Germany, a communist conspiracy. Um, What are your thoughts on these narratives, this notion that you can trace a lot of what happened in the 60s to efforts by East Germany to, say, fund... um, uh, Klaus Reinier rolls uh, student courier or or, th- or, or, or paying um, 
the the guy who shot uh, um, Ben Onazorg, he being a secret right. police. What are your thoughts on this 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 narrative that that much of the '60s can be attributed to um, a, a secret communist plot? I guess. What we can say, or what we see in the historical record, is that there is financial and logistical support uh, from East Germany um, to the West German student movement of the 1960s. However, uh, one has to be very careful uh, when saying that um, East Berlin would have been able to control in any way, shape, or form the actions of West German um, student activists. There are a couple of situations uh, during which East German officials are deeply embarrassed um, by the actions of, for example, the West German Commune 1. The fact is that West German student activists, members of the SDS in Berlin, did not conform um, to the um, theoretical and ideological guidelines of the East German Communist Party and were basically incalculable in their action and could not be controlled. And hence, I think that the narrative of an uh, East German or of a communist constru- uh, control of uh, the student movement is basically a myth um, of the time. Um, and the same conclusion uh, was reached also by the um, United States Department of State and the CIA, who were, of course, very interested in these connections uh, between East Germany or between uh, the Soviet Union or other communist um, countries and the student rebels of the 1960s. The CIA and the Department of State made very clear uh, that there is this network of financial and logistical support, but that there's no ideological or political control of these movements um, from the East uh, Eastern Bloc, and that is something uh, that, that I think um, is, is is very crucial. So much has been made of the fact that students in America in the '60s they had a a draft to worry about. It was. Um, you know, it had to have been clearly a, a driving factor in the size of the protests and the anti-American, anti-war movement in America. Um, and, and the logic is that one of the reasons why there wasn't a comparable anti-war movement over the last eight years was because there was no draft scaring students to get active. Um, so what role do you see the draft has uh, having played in the 60s um, movements? Because it was obviously very strong in America, but it was pretty strong in Germany as well, and there was no draft to worry about. Exactly. I mean, and that is a very, very important point. I mean, it's very hard to um, overestimate the role um, of the draft for the American context. I think it was an enormous driving factor, and it's hard to imagine uh, the American anti-war movement without the threat of the draft uh, looming behind it uh, to the extent that it um, happened. However, uh, and that is the um, contrasting point here, um, it did happen in other countries where there was no draft, and there were certainly people involved in the anti-war movement in the United States which were not, were not threatened by the draft. So um, how can we account for um, other student protests or other protest movements occurring um, at the same time in other countries? Uh, and here, uh, I think the Cold War provides a very, very interesting point of reference here because I think what connects a lot of these movements all over the world is their dissatisfaction with the Cold War, with the geopolitical um, opposition between East and West, and between um, the usage of Cold War ideology in domestic context to perpetuate an undemocratic um, system. Students in West Germany, for example, called for greater democracy 
uh, in the university. Uh, they called for um, fundamental opposition to the war in Vietnam. Students on the other side uh, of the Iron Curtain in Eastern Europe, for example, had completely different um, agendas, but they were united in the sense that they felt dissatisfied with the Cold War um, as such, and they wanted to live, uh, wanted their governments to live up to the um, rhetoric that they put forward in terms of freedom and democracy, and that they promised um, their citizens and the rhetoric that, of detente um, that was coming from the United States government as well. Sure. So you, um, in your book, you identify basically a stunning number of connections and parallels between the German and American student movements. Where did they, where did these movements diverge? What, you know, what ways were they fundamentally different? One of the things that is fundamentally different is the impact that the National Socialist uh, past and legacies have on the West German student movement. That is not the case uh, in the American context at all. Um, on the other hand, um, we also see that the uh, uh, theoretical traditions of socialism and Marxism are far stronger uh, in the German case. I mean, German student activists, when, for example, visiting the United States, are perceived as much more theoretically minded uh, and much more grounded uh, in um, the writings of uh, Marx and uh, other socialist thinkers than their American peers. I mean, that is certainly uh, a fundamental difference um, there. And it's interesting to see that you have a lot of moments in the course of the 60s where um, this other alliance tries to institutionalize itself in the form uh, of transnational, what we would call now uh, NGOs, but that did not materialize. And the threat that they posed to the official Cold War alliance uh, is substantial in, in, the, in the sense that American foreign policymakers are, of course, taking that very, very seriously because they see the young generation uh, not being in support of their policies anymore, and that poses a problem for the future. But by and large, the other alliance did not succeed in destroying the Cold War alliance that they're fighting against. Uh, so in that sense, uh, we see that they um, converged ideologically on a lot of points, but um, were not powerful enough to overcome the differences in the end. Wow. So what do you... Um what do you think the biggest myths are um, in, like, if you ask the, the average German about the '68 generation? What do you think some of the biggest myths are that people maintain about this group? I mean, about this generation. One of the myths in the German context is, of course, that the '68 was the first generation to take up um, the issue of the National Socialist past. That happened already uh, at the beginning of the decade or at the end of the uh, 1950s. Uh, what we see is that uh, the West German student act activists basically popularize or bring this issue um, into the mainstream of society and start a very, very uh, forceful discussion of it. I mean, that is something um, that we see and that we can credit to the West German student movement, but in that sense, they were just taking up a lot of things that were all trends that were already uh, in place. And then the other myth, I think, is, of course, and we already talked about that, uh, this West German student movement being anti-American. Uh, and that is a myth that has perpetuated itself uh, in uh, the writings of historians and journalists alike. Uh, the fact that um, uh, West German student activists were uh, driven by a deep hatred um, of the United States um, as such. Uh, and as I said, I think one has to be very, very careful in differentiating here between the extreme um, disagreement that we find uh, with the United States government and what 
they called even at the time the other America. Uh, and we can also talk about um, images and uh, stereotypes here, of course, but the fact is that most of the student uh, activists um, in West Germany at the end of the 60s and the beginning of the 70s uh, were not driven by deep anti-Americanism, but were very deeply influenced by the American counterculture. And these two myths, um, I think, are hopefully ones uh, that I can chatter a little bit through my book. <laughs> and, and, of course, one of the, the biggest myths is this notion of the Red Army faction is uh, the, the 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 legacy, the most important legacy, or the most profound legacy of the new left of the German 60s is the Red Army faction. Somehow that they are they are part and parcel the same thing. Absolutely. I mean that is another um, discussion that has been, of course, very very present in the Western context and in the German media, um, of course, um, um, at the occasion of anniversaries. Um, for example, in 2007, uh, 30 years after the anniversary um, of the um, German autumn. Um, you're absolutely right. The German uh, student movement is much more than Red Army Faction. At the same time, the Red Army Faction, as I said, is part um, of the German student movement. But if you look at the legacy of the 60s and of the German student movement at all, we'll have to take into account um, a lot more factors than that. Uh, a lot more factors that have nothing to do with violence, which are uh, situated in the cultural, in the political field. And I think one of the aims of my work has been to try to paint a much more comprehensive picture of the historical role and legacy of these movements and the effect they had not only within or from the movement's perspective, but also the reactions they provoked uh, from the so-called forces of the establishment who also adapted um, to certain innovations or certain ideas put forward um, by the movements of the 1960s. I mean, if we look around today, uh, a lot of the ideas um, about um, democracy in university settings, a lot of ideas in terms of the environment, uh, a lot of ideas in terms of um, lifestyle uh, are coming from, to a certain extent, uh, the 1960s and have been um, put into the mainstream in the following decades, and that's something I think if we really want to access, talk about the um, 60s from a more sober um, and less dramatized point of view is something that we need to take into account. Yeah, I, I at the height of the anti-war movement of, say, 2004 and 2003, I was struck by the fact that there was a million people in Berlin that were out protesting and they were protest and they weren't actually protesting they were essentially saying thank you to their government for standing up to George Bush and that was an exact opposite uh, it was it was an exact mirror image of what was happening 30 years earlier when that's those same students were out there protesting their government's perceived alliance with America and Vietnam, um, and I think that the reason for that was that generation of students that didn't become the Red Army faction, but they took that long march to the institutions like Gerhard Schroeder, and they became part of government as opposed to, um, not Schroeder, but, um, but uh, you know, uh, Otto Schiele and all these others that chose this other path that became that that um, that didn't follow the path of violence, but kept to their ideals and had an influence in Germany's decision not to become part of this war. In other words, the students had something to support. It seemed like a it seemed like a, a 
a much more profound legacy to that era than the Bader-Meinhof group. I think you're right about that. I think we cannot understand um, the uh, decision to, um, of Gerhard Schröder uh, and his government to oppose uh, the invasion into Iraq without understanding where that government and where he himself comes from and how he was influenced um, by the movement of um, the 1960s and 70s. And I think Rashid Fischer said at some point that for him there existed a two-faced America, one um, that was waging a, um, a war in Vietnam during the 60s, and then the other America. And the other America is something that fundamentally shaped um, his views. And I think that that um, is true for a lot of people um, who then entered a lot of positions of power and influence in um, West German society and now in German society after reunification, that they have been fundamentally shaped by these conflicts um, of the 1960s uh, and 70s. And incidentally, I mean, this is precisely what U.S. foreign policymakers at the end of the 60s and the beginning of the 70s tried to ascertain. To what degree will the student movement have an intellectual, intellectual impact the political landscape in the Federal Republic, and what degree will that change the foreign policy of the Federal Republic? And they were very uh, aware of the fact that a lot of former student activists entered the Social Democratic Party um, when really gained chancellorship, uh, and that they would, as you said, um, start marching through the institutions and change West German politics and culture from within. And we can debate for a long, long time how representative these people uh, like Otto Schiele, Joske Fischer, and Gerhard Schröder are in terms of the um, 68er, the 68 or the 60s or baby booming generation. Uh, but nevertheless, you can trace an influence of ideas and um, battle lines from the 60s and 70s up until their policies up to date. Well, boy, this has been a fascinating conversation. I appreciate your time. Um, people can, um, who, who are listeners to my podcast, visitors to my site, can certainly pick up a copy of The Other Alliance through links on my website at Amazon.com. Um, and also you have a website, I believe. Absolutely. To, if what's the website? The website is www.otheralliance.com, and there you can find uh, excerpts from the book and also a primary source material and a lot of images uh, from this time. Well, I really appreciate your time, Martin. Thank you so much for speaking with me. Well, it was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much to you. Bottom line, huh?